So I like adventures. I've moved a lot in the last dozen or so years. I like to go to different places. I like to explore different cities. I like to see what new food tastes like. I like to be inspired and excited. And each time I've moved to a new place, I've really loved embracing the new culture and the new, ex- and the new opportunities and the new people. But there's one thing that I've learned in all of those transitions is that it can be extremely disorienting. It takes about six months to feel even remotely settled, and it takes on average about two years to actually feel like you're present and that you're comfortable in your own skin once again. And over this time, your mind can begin to play tricks on you. Doubt can sneak in, fear can sneak in, anger, despair, and we have a term for it for those of us who have served abroad. It's called culture shock. Now, one of the things that I have been experiencing here, because I'm in my own culture, but I've been here 18 months, so I'm still kind of within that two-year window. But in my conversations with many of you and around the community, I'm getting a deep sense that there's culture shock happening within us. And that COVID-19 has disrupted us so significantly, has disoriented us so significantly, that we actually are experiencing some of those same symptoms that we would call culture shock. I've talked to many community leaders, I've talked to other pastors, and I think in some way each and every one of us has actually been disrupted to a varying degree, and it's forced us to get to know this place all over again. For the church, people coming through the door, it looks different, it feels different. It's not the same church that I left 18 months ago. In our workplaces, those who had to go home and work from home, coming back to the office, now going back home again, it feels different and it feels disorienting. And many in our community have been so significantly disrupted, they're hurting and they're experiencing significant loss. I think in the midst of all of this, some of the emotions that begin to push up are guilt, shame, strong feelings of inferiority, insecurity, and inadequacy. And left over time, this can actually begin to shape our worldview. And that grid that forms overlays itself on top of our worldview and shapes our reaction and our responses to the things around us. It really changes the way we interact with the world, the way we interact with one another, the way we comment or respond in the midst of conflict. It begins to shape everything in our life, our relationships, our workplaces, even the way we interact as a community. So you start to wonder, is there good news? Now, I'm here to tell you, absolutely, there's some phenomenal news. And not just the phenomenal news that Jesus Christ has died for us and is not in any way disoriented or disrupted by all of this. That is amazing news. But I think there's another good news piece in all of this. You see, disorientation always leads to dilemma. And dilemma is the prerequisite for learning. I'll say that again. Disorientation always leads to dilemma, 
and dilemma is always the prerequisite for learning something new. You see, I think we have an opportunity right now, more than maybe we've had in my lifetime, to learn and hear and explore in new ways in the midst of these trying times to experience the good news of Jesus Christ in a more tangible way so that those pre-programmed thoughts and actions that have developed over time, perhaps been pushed into the default mode through COVID-19, no longer remain our default responses. Because we have an opportunity to rethink the way things work. So along with the stories of disruption that I've been hearing, I've also been hearing some phenomenal stories of amazing victory from you. Stories of how God is moving, how God is giving you new freedom, how God is bringing you sometimes through some incredibly painful experiences, but you feel decidedly loved and comforted in community. You, you sense the presence of God. You're, you're finding yourself with a renewed commitment to Jesus Christ. And in the middle of this storm, you are actually starting to see Jesus in a brand new light. It's these stories, good and bad, the way that they're changing you in the midst of this incredibly difficult time that has inspired me to do this particular sermon series. Now last week we started with the big one, forgiveness. And I've heard from several of you, it was a tough one. Because I think it's probably the toughest of all of the lies that we're going to be kind of exposing over the next few weeks. It's the one that's the most deeply personal in its interactions with others. It's the one that causes us to let go of things in ways that are very, very difficult for human beings. It's probably my most difficult, and I don't want to project that on you, but it wouldn't be surprising to me if it was your most difficult as well. Now, I want to get underneath that before we move to the next lie I want to get underneath that one a little bit because I think there's a, a piece that we need to take a moment and take stock of because I think it's something that will impact the way we look and experience all of the things we're going to look at over the next little while. You see, I think that there's the question that the dilemma has brought us to. Where do these lies come from? Are they just in our heads or do they come from another source? John 10.10 says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. So I think we're in a battle. Scripture tells us we're in a battle. And I think the first step in the battle for our thought life in rejecting these lies is to identify and to observe who is our enemy. And I think enemy number one is Satan. Jesus called him the father of lies. Paul referred to him of the power in the air. John called him the devil, the accuser of the brethren. Adam and Eve knew him as the serpent. 
Ephesians 6.12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Make no mistake, we have an enemy. And that enemy is whispering constantly these lies that get into your head and then begin to shape your worldview. That grid that has descended on us, Make no mistake, that was fabricated, and it's intentional to take your eyes off of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago when talking to the kids, we talked about keeping our eyes on Jesus, and and like Peter, we can walk on water, but as soon as our eyes come off him, we begin to sink. The enemy wants you to sink. And so that first observance is that that first enemy, the enemy number one, the one that drives this, is Satan. The second one is the world. John 5, 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. John writes in his gospel, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The words of Jesus. See, I'm not talking about the world as in our neighbor. I'm talking about the world and the systems around us that contribute to a false way of thinking. And so the world tells you you can't forgive. We talked about that last week. And Jesus is saying you can. If we get our worldview, if we get our thought processes from the world and not from the word, we begin to see things differently and those lies have an opportunity to sneak in and impact the way we interact with one another and how it places and how it works through in our lives. And so if we pay attention to the news, and I'm not saying it's not good to read or see the news, but sometimes that can cause us to get all frustrated and angry. And if you're anything like me, you know, you can can start to get a little riled by it. And yet the Word says, be still and know that I am God. So the moment we're watching the news and we're riled up, we've taken our eyes off of Jesus and we've taken our input from the world and that's the enemy number two. Enemy number three, the Bible calls the flesh. And that's us. I don't know about you, but my biggest obstacle is most likely me most of the time. I get in my own way. Because again, I'm the one who's taken my eyes off of Jesus. I'm in control of my neck. I can swivel. I can place where my eyes go. I can decide what I look at. I can decide what I focus on. I can decide what I repeat to myself again and again and again. Modern psychology calls it cognitive behavioral therapy. We have learned that if we keep telling ourselves something, we will begin to believe it. So therapists will have you tell truth to get you to remind yourself of truth. But if you keep telling yourself these lies, you will believe them and they will become reality in your life. You see, enemy number three is myself because I look at the wrong thing and I put the wrong things into my system. And so the call here, I think, is to know your real enemy because it's not the person who hurt you. We become blindfolded warriors. And we're like we're lashing out at one another because we're not looking at the right things. Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoice in confident hope, be patient in trouble, and keep on praying. 
So let's push a little bit further. I want to look at another lie this morning. And this time we're going to look at the life and the call of Gideon. And to give you some background, Gideon was called at about the seventh year of a, a, the regime of the Midianites who were oppressing the Israeli people. And it really was because Israel had been uh, unresponsive to God's call. They were in disobedience. The word says it was a punishment from God. And it becomes so bad that Scripture tells us that the, Midi- that the Midianites were everywhere and that Israeli people were looking for places to hide in the mountains and they were hiding in caves. And the crop raids were happening and the people were in this desperate place. The word says that Israel had been brought very low. So they were calling out to God because of the fact that this was happening to them. And it's in the midst of this that God calls a prophet. And his name was Gideon. And the story goes like this. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath a great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. God's son of jo- sorry, Gideon's son of Joash was threshing wheat at the bottom of the winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles of our ancestors ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, has handed, handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. God begins this conversation to Gideon, O mighty man of valor, O mighty warrior. So he's beating out the wheat in the wine press. Now, if you've studied Scripture at all, you know that that's the worst place to be beating out wheat. You should be up. And if you're an agriculturist, if you're a farmer, you know that you need to get the chaff away from the wheat. And I'm speaking of something I know nothing about. But this is not the right place to do it. He's trying to do this hiding and keeping his food hidden. He's afraid. He's anything but the mighty warrior. But God sees Gideon for who he can be in Christ's strength, in God's strength. He sees Gideon as he can be, as opposed to who he is at the moment. He can see through the lies. See, God's not limited by Gideon's limitations, and he isn't limited by ours. He wanted his power to work through Gideon in order to change the reality of Israel's current plight. So Gideon replies to him, If you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. He answered, I will stay here until you return. So Gideon didn't immediately recognize this this was God. But he recognized that there was something going on, and this was special. And so he wanted to prepare an offering. So he goes back home, and he makes some food, about 35 to 45 pounds of food, the scripture tells us, which is quite a bit considering they were actually in a harsh situation. Poverty and hunger were definitely happening at the time. And so he goes back and he prepares this food. 
because he's looking for a sign. Now, Scripture tells us that he comes back, he puts it on this rock, the angel of the Lord burns up the food with fire, and Gideon immediately, his eyes are opened and sees that this is God. You see, Gideon responds out of his self-doubt. How can I save Israel? I'm not good enough. And God showed his power to give Gideon the clarity that he needed in the moment where everything was completely upside down for him. See, this was a pattern in Gideon's life. And we see it as the story continues. One of the most famous stories in the Bible is Gideon's testing of, of whether he should go to battle by laying out the fleece. And, you know, one moment the fleece had to be dry and the ground had to be wet, and the other moment the fleece had to be wet and the, dr- the ground had to be dry. So Gideon, even after this first experience of seeing God faithfully and patiently show him a sign, he still needed to be convinced. That fear had rooted itself so deeply in Gideon's life. So instead of trusting God, Gideon expresses his own frailty and allowed his own frailty, that framework that had come over his life, dictate how he interacted even with God. So he responds to God really in a cynical way. Where were you? Where's God? We hear of these stories, but those are from the past. There's nothing happening right now except these real problems. He missed that God's treatment of Israel was actually just. And he, so God takes him and encourages him in his own strength, he says. So he's saying to Gideon, you don't need to be somebody special. I will send you. So he's not going to suddenly turn Gideon into something different. He's not going to miraculously give him some muscles. In his weakness, I want you to go in obedience. But Gideon objects, and he attempts to avoid personal responsibility, and he has a preoccupation with these physical manifestations of God, these proofs, instead of the divine presence of God and the truth that God has given him. Gideon's faith was deeply inconsistent. But God graciously accommodates Gideon more than once. And the contrast between Gideon's fearful resistance and God's patience is profound. And I think he does that with us. And this is the good news. So even though we're in disorientation, which leads to dilemma, which leads to learning, God is patiently bringing us through each of those steps, prompting us to get to where we need to be. And the story continues. That night, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using it as fuel, the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded. But he did it at night because he was afraid. So there's the fear still permeating his life. He was was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. So see, this is really interesting. 
See, the Israel, Israel had been crying out to God and yet still engaged in the practice of idol worship. There was this syncretism happening. So at one moment, they knew they needed God to free them from this. But they were still engaged in the very practices that led them to the punishment from God in the first place. And in the midst of that, God still comes to rescue them. But he, ta- he, he commands Gideon to start by tearing down the idols. So Gideon responds. He chooses to do it at night. But he still chooses to do it. And it's really amazing that God chose to act at all. And this, this is, I think, one of the more profound parts of this story for me. Is that even though they were still remaining in disobedience, God still chose to come and lead them to the place where they would be obedient, starting with Gideon. Of course, the story goes on. Gideon raises an army, about 35,000 people, men. He then asks, God says to him, I want you to get rid of it, so anyone who doesn't want to come, and about 30,000 people leave. That's how much fear had gripped the nation. He then goes through this bizarre recruiting exercise of how you drink the water. Do you cup it? Do you sip it? Do you put your face in the lake? And it narrows it down to 300 men. And he goes into battle. Of course, they break the pots. They blow the trumpets. And, of course, they rout the Midianites and Israel's freed. And salvation through God comes through the obedience of this man who was originally cowering in a wine press trying to beat out the wheat in a low spot. And nobody here is thinking that was the strength of Midian because he only had, or the strength of Gideon because he only had 300 people. And this is how God works. See, Gideon began to understand where the real power was. It wasn't in numbers or in money or in strength or in success. It wasn't in the idols that he was still worshiping or the wisdom of the world that said you needed to be afraid. It was in God and it's still in God. And Gideon found freedom when he realized that the success of the thing that God was calling him to do wasn't his responsibility. Obedience was. God wasn't holding Gideon responsible for the outcome. He was only holding him responsible for his obedient response. And so we live the story today. What does this mean for us? I think this is a humorous dialogue between God and Gideon, this mighty warrior. I can imagine God turning to me and saying, Dwayne, O mighty man of valor, And all of you should be laughing right now. Because each of us, when we look inside, we know we struggle. And we know our faults better than anybody else. And God is looking at you today and saying, O mighty man, O mighty woman of valor, I have a plan for you. And maybe you're cowering in the wine press. Maybe you have fear. Maybe you've been listening to the world. Maybe the lie, I'm not good enough, has permeated your life. I don't know. But God is still looking at you and saying, O mighty one. God worked in and through Gideon in spite of his shortcomings and in spite of his background. 
and he did a work in his life and overcame that background and overcame his story in order to bring about transformation, changing Gideon into the person that acted in obedience and ultimately saved the nation. None of that happened because of Gideon's spirituality. It happened because of God's faithfulness. So let's make it personal. The root of all of this. I'm not good enough. Now you can assert anything you want. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not well-spoken enough. I can't preach good enough. I can't do school good enough. I'm not a good enough husband. I'm not a good enough wife. You can assert anything you want. The root of all of that underneath is I'm not good enough. I actually think this one is probably the foundation for all of the lies we'll explore. Because we have this broken sense of self. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. You are the image of the Creator. You are remarkable. You were the one that on the seventh day God rested, but on the sixth He said, you're very good. You were good enough for Jesus to come and die for you. Not in your goodness, but in your worth. I'm not good enough holds us hostage to crippling self-doubt. It is a less than life where our flaws overcome our faith. Self-doubt. I'm not good enough, smart enough, talented enough, gifted enough, spiritual enough, outgoing enough, attractive enough, or any number of positive traits, we say we're not enough. So the first thing, like Gideon, is tear down the idols. Look through your life and find out what you are worshiping that isn't God. Break it down, burn it. I think of my own life, and, and before I began to walk with Jesus, there were a lot of idols. And the process of me getting to a place where God could use me was about ripping them down mercilessly. And sometimes it hurts, because sometimes they've got their hooks in us. The second is, like Gideon, kick out the enemy. We can't do this on our own strength, but we can do this with God. I think this is what community is about. Gideon did it with 299 other people. Because we can't do it alone. Gather your small groups around you, clean out the closet, clear out the enemy, and get at those idols, those things that distract you from the truth. Kick out the enemies, the ones who tell you something false. Whether it be ourselves, the world, and ultimately Satan. Say no. Reject the lie. Here's the truth. Jesus doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Can you hear me? Jesus doesn't call the qualified. I am living proof of that. He qualifies the call. We get better at what we do the more we do it. It isn't about incompetence. We seek excellence. But our call doesn't come because of what I can do. What I can do comes because I'm called. And I am not responsible 
for the outcome of my obedience. God is responsible for it. Every single time I come up here to preach, I'm nervous. I've had butterflies for 18 months of Sunday mornings. Not because I'm nervous to speak, but because I'm, I'm, I'm concerned, I'm conscious of the fact that this matters and you might not hear it and it might not make any transformative change in your life. And God has to remind me week after week after week, I am calling you to obedience. It is not your responsibility. Now, of course, if I don't preach well, I don't do my work, then of course that's my fault. But if I'm being obedient, the results are not my responsibility. The truth is I am good enough because Christ dwells in me and the Holy Spirit has empowered me. In the words of Jesus, John writes, when I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Paul writes in Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth, Fort Saskatchewan, Sherwood Park, Edmonton, wherever you're listening to me from right now, He has sent you. He has called you. He has equipped you. He has qualified you. He is empowering you. And the lie has no place in your life. Because He is good enough, you can do all things through Him. So when you're tempted to compare yourself to other people, people who seem more gifted, people who seem more put together, people who seem more beautiful, people who seem more, insert the adjective here, remember the truth. I am good enough because Christ dwells in me and the Holy Spirit empowers me. Just think about who Jesus used in the past. Jacob was a liar. Moses couldn't speak well. David was an adulterer. Rahab a prostitute. Esther orphaned. Gideon was confused and afraid. God used each of them to further his plans. And God can use you and he can use me. And he wants to do great things in us, through us, each and every one of us, each and every single day. Just remember the truth. I am good enough because Christ dwells in me and the Holy Spirit empowers me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone listening to me this morning or at any time in the future, Lord, that is hearing this lie, that they're not good enough, that they're not talented enough, beautiful enough, put together enough. I pray, Lord, they hear the truth. That they are loved so deeply that you died for them. That it is you that qualifies them. And it is you that calls them first to yourself and then to others. Lord, I pray we'd be a people that hear truth. 
that we would assist one another in recognizing the enemy, that we would burn and break the idols, and that we would lean into you and reject the lies. For those who are hurting this morning, I pray your presence would be deeply felt. For those who have a story that's hard to overcome, for those who have been told repeatedly that they are not good enough, Lord, I pray that you drown out those lies and that truth would take root. Lord, for all of us who struggle with idols, with idolatry, with those things in our lives that take our eyes off of you, I pray we'd have the courage to step out of the wine press, that we'd tear down those idols, not at night, but in the middle of the day, and that with the 300, we'd kick the enemy out of our lives. Lord, we can do all things through you who strengthen us. We ask this, Lord, in your name, and as we come to your table, I pray that we would remember the truth.